0: The following is brought to you by the Leave it in the Ring podcast network. All boxing, no filter.
1: Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring and ringtv.com and distributed by the Leave it in the Ring network. My guest on this episode is David Berlin, the former executive director of the New York State Athletic Commission. We had a great conversation. We got into how he uh, got into this sport and his friendships with uh, Teddy Atlas and Don Elbaum, uh, his current client, Dimitri Salida and Salida Promotions. Uh, Also, uh, him trying to get his uh, management uh, company off the ground, Four Corners. also uh, spoke about his old job at the New York State Athletic Commission and, and some of the issues that he dealt with, including um, drug testing in New York and getting fighters health care insurance and how much the uh, promoters have to carry in insurance uh, for each fight. Uh, also got into instant replay, um, how he assigned judges and referees. Um, and also, we spoke about a national commission, which he is a, a very big proponent of. So, great conversation. Really hope you enjoy. It's my great pleasure to be speaking on this episode uh, to one of my favorite people in the sport, the former executive director of the New York State Athletic Commission, uh, Mr. David Berlin. Welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast, David. Thank you, Kurt. <laughs> Just as, you know, of course, uh, a fire truck uh, goes by and <laughs> already we've got a got audio sound effects here but uh but hey wait um just wanted to uh
0: uh, nowhere in new york city
1: (laughs) exactly exactly so yeah i wanted to i wanted to to talk to you about a a number of issues but uh but but before we get into all that i just wanted to get a, a little bit about your background so uh where are you originally from
0: so i grew up in amherst massachusetts it's a college town where amherst college is located and the university of massachusetts and my parents were teachers my dad was a professor at the university of massachusetts uh taught shakespeare the uh, samuel Beckett, eugene o'neill um and he was a boxing fan on top of that oh nice <laughs> so that's where that's where i gained my interest in boxing from from my father
1: i gotcha i gotcha so um did you, guys, did you move to, uh, to New York at some point, or, or before undergraduate, or, or was that, uh, I mean, because um, I, I know that uh, at no, some point you went to Madison uh, Square Garden and saw Fights Live. but. Uh,
0: uh, well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I graduated high school in Amherst, uh, went off to college, and I came to New York for law school. So I went to NYU School of Law. Um, and before that time, actually, I had started going to the fights with my older brother, Adam. We, we used to be regulars at the Felt Forum, which was the, the name then of the small theater in the Garden. Um, they had Thursday night fights pretty regularly, and we were there seeing, uh, seeing the young New York fighters come up. Guys like Buddy McGirt, um, who was a headliner then, Aaron Davis. Uh, Tunde Foster back then, uh, Glenwood Brown. So these were the fighters we saw uh, headline it shows at at the Felt Forum. Then it was a a good time and a good crowd and a really a much grittier field in that venue than than the refurbished version today.
1: <laughs> right. So that w- that would have been like sometime maybe mid to late 80s. Is that right um, or early
0: 80s maybe? Yeah, it would have been uh it, w- it would have been during throughout the 80s. Exactly right.
1: Right. Yeah, cuz that, that's when MSG kind of revived their their promotional uh arm and they had Bobby Goodman running it and uh, they signed a bunch of fighters. They had a you know, great great group, you know, group of fighters, you know, many of which you you mentioned there. Um so I know you actually you actually yeah, yeah. You, you, you actually uh boxed for a little bit. I, I think I saw in your background that you boxed in in Florida what, How did you end up in Florida, and how did you end up uh, actually uh getting in a ring?
0: Sure. I had a few amateur fights. um you know as I said, I, I was a boxing fan uh, from the time I was a kid, just uh watching the Saturday afternoon fights with my father. And when I went to my first live fight at the Felt Forum, that's really when I became hooked on the sport. Um, So when I came to New York to go to law school, I saw a class uh, was a magazine. I I doubt it's still around, but something called the Learning Annex. And there was a class uh, with Bob Jackson called White Collar Boxing. Uh, So I headed over to Gleason's Gym, and I signed up for these four Saturday morning classes. Uh, over there, and started to learn to box, and it uh, it really hooked me from the beginning, and I started going more and more, and once I finished law school, I was working in the Bronx for the Legal Aid Society, doing public defense work, and I joined the Jerome Jerome Boxing Club um, down in the South Bronx, and it was pretty much a part of my daily routine, where I'd be uh, working out there, sparring, Um, and so I learned... I grew as a boxer there. Um, I had taken the leave of absence from legal aid for a year, and I was down in Florida. And it's during that time when I had more time on my hands, um, so I trained at a gym down there. It was uh, entirely amateur gym called the Frontline Outreach Center. Um, one name you recognize from that gym is Antonio Tarver. He was uh, he was a guy who obviously stood out from, from from the rest over there, but we all Got there at the same time, trained together, and I had a few fights while I was down there. So I had uh, I had nine amateur fights in all.
1: Wow, that's awesome! That's awesome! That's awesome! So, so you weren't practicing down in Florida; you were just taking kind of a leave of absence. That's great! That's great! That's great! So, yes.
0: Leave, a, leave the
1: they're oh, Always great. Yeah. <laughs> Especially from practicing law. All those overworked lawyers yeah, fantasize yeah. about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so, when you came back to New York, you started, uh, you know, you have a, a list of people you've represented. Pretty impressive. Let um, me go through a couple of the names. Well, Teddy Atlas, how did you meet up with Teddy and when did you start uh, representing him?
0: Sure. You know, that was really. Uh, I met Teddy at the time I started getting involved in boxing on on this side of the sport, where I represented fighters and people in the boxing world. Um, I was a, I was at the Legal Aid Society doing public defense work in the Bronx for about ten years. I left there in 1999 to go out on my own, and I had always had an interest in somehow getting involved in the sport. I wasn't quite sure how I would do it. Uh, but once I went out on my own, I had really a couple of chance meetings with different people, and that um, allowed me to get this to know this world a little bit more. Uh, one of those was with Teddy Atlas, a friend of mine, uh, had a non nonprofit uh, organization where that brought programs to the schools, and I was on the board. And he let me know that through some other connection, one of the awards they were going to give out that year was to as he described it, one of the commentators on the Friday Night fights, And I asked him who it was. He didn't know the name. Uh, I said, is it Teddy Atlas? And he wasn't sure about that. I said, well, let me know. I said, if it's Teddy Atlas, I'd like to go with you to meet him. So sure enough, it was Teddy. And I joined him for that meeting. And Teddy and I hit it off really from from the time that we uh, first met. We were Talking boxing, obviously, I uh, knew the sport. Um, certainly more than the guy I was going there with. Uh, and Teddy, you know, in his typical generosity, the uh, first day I met him, gave me tickets to uh, fights in Atlantic City. A couple of tickets. Uh, he was training Michael Grant at that time. Hard headlined by Arturo Gatti and Mickey Ward. The third fight. Um, so I was able to head down there, and uh, Teddy and I have. Kept our friendship all these years oh,
1: that's great that's great that's great um so Don Elbaum the bum <laughs> from my hometown Erie PA
0: how did you uh, how'd you hook up with Don <laughs> that's right well a lot of good boxing men from Erie right Don that's... Elbaum Mike Acree and uh Kurt Ampop. that's right that's uh, right <laughs> well yeah uh I actually met Don uh through Teddy um interestingly the connection uh which got us over to teddy's house uh with someone who knew don so don had set up that meeting um which i didn't know at the time um so in a sense i met teddy because of don and i also met don because of teddy uh <laughs> teddy at the time you know we were speaking i you know i told him i was getting involved at that time actually i had uh, just met james butler um was out of jail uh, and ready to get back in the ring. And uh, Ron Scott Stevens, who was commissioner at that time, had suggested to him that he would give him back his boxing license. Um, And through a mutual friend, I'd known James actually because he also used to work out at the Jerome Boxing Club. But we ended up uh, meeting again uh, through a mutual friend. Uh, and I eventually managed James Butler. Um, but it, it's about that time. I was starting to get involved in the sport. Um, and naturally went to Teddy about it. And he said, let me put you in touch with a few different promoters. Maybe they can help you out. Maybe they can give you advice. Um, and he gave me the names of about five guys, uh, all promoters so you would know, of course. And Don Elbaum was one of those names. Um, so uh, again, typical of the way Teddy operates, he not only gave me the names and numbers, but he called ahead to each of them, uh, to make sure they knew that I'd be calling them and, you know, asking to help me as they could. Uh, the one man in that group who actually helped me was Don Alabama. So he was living in the Philadelphia area at the time and said, he'd let me know next time he was in the city. So we met at the diner and started talking and, uh, you know, I've had that relationship with Don ever since. It's, uh, you know, first a friendship as with Teddy and and uh, also a, a lawyer-client relationship at times. Um, so I've known Don from about the, the same time or just after I met Teddy.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. So I, I see a lot of, uh, of, of, of world champions that, that, that you represented. I'm wondering if you, you managed them or, or it was more legal representation like Michael Moore and Iran Barkley, Saul Mambi, Juan Laporte, Aaron Davis. Were those guys still fighting, or or was it more of a legal thing when you represented them? Uh,
0: More of a legal thing. This was really uh, when most of those names you mentioned uh, were retired. They had issues that came up. Uh, Mostly New York fighters, as you see, so I, uh, you know, it's a small community, as you know, the boxing community, right. certainly the New York boxing community. So uh, situations came up, and uh, I would help guys out, mostly on a pro bono basis. Um, but, the, you know, I ran Barclay, I have a close relationship to, and, and the others as well. I helped out when I could. Right. But it was after their fighting career, and I, I was not managing them. Okay,
1: okay, gotcha, gotcha. So, currently, you're representing a uh, former client of mine, Mr. Dimitri Salita and Salita Promotions, and, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, came very close to having, uh, you know, the, the linear heavyweight champion a week or so ago with uh, Otto Valine. Uh, Valin. uh right. t- Talk about uh, what's going on with Salida Promotions.
0: Sure, um after I left the commission, um or after I was uh, forced to leave the commission I should say, Dimitri right. approached me. Um he called me a few days later, uh we met and he asked me uh whether whether I could uh pick would be of counsel to his promotional company. Um so we came to an agreement and we've done that ever since. So I do represent Salida Promotions. Um John who you know, um, also does some work for Dimitri for his promotional company. Right, right. Um, so, so most of my legal work actually these days is, is for Dimitri. I mean, I do, uh, as you know, other work as well, work for Agus Klimas, for Dave McWhorter, um, you know, number of fighters. Uh, but, uh, the bulk of my work these days is forced to lead the promotions, um, he he does, as you know, promote Otto Wallin, uh, a fighter I'm connected to. And, yeah, Otto had a great performance a couple of weeks ago. I mean, he, he went into the fight as an unknown heavyweight from Sweden and emerged, you know, showing what he is, showing his, his real character. Um, and it's something that his team knew ahead of time, the kind of character he has. And he showed it in the ring. He shows it outside the ring all of the time. Um, But he he proved himself on the big stage that he belongs in the mix of uh, top heavyweights today. So it was, uh, you know, despite it being a loss on his record, it was really really his coming out party um, where he showed what he is and and showed where he belongs. Um, And he clearly belonged in the ring with Tyson Fury that night. Absolutely, absolutely. It's funny, I I had a tim smith on a podcast
1: from the pbc not not a few days ago and uh we we're pretty much in agreement that if that fight happened in new york instead of uh, nevada probably would have been stopped with that cut <laughs> because it, i mean nevada kind of tends to let these things go i don't know if it's because of their history with like the ufc and you know where a guy's like half his brain is showing and they let it go but uh i mean even with that i mean I, you know even i think Recently, right with Badu Jack, there was a horrible cut that they let go in, in Vegas. I, in, but New York seems to be a lot more stringent. I mean, uh, I mean, would you would you agree with that with that statement? Uh, yeah, I
0: mean, it's hard I to say. Agree, but. I think that the fight—you <laughs> never know. It, it, there's a good chance the fight would have been stopped somewhere else. But you know, it, I honestly hate to, although I think that's a reality. I don't like talking in those terms because I don't want to take credit away from Tyson Fury, who himself showed his character in that ring and showed his toughness to be able to battle through something like that. So, you know, all credit to, to Tyson Fury for his performance as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's no joke to try and fight when, when you can't see out of one eye, especially with a guy as big as Otto swinging at you. So. Yeah, definitely a very gutty performance by by Tyson. Now you're also on the other side of the table, you 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 have a management team, right? The Four Corners Management with uh with Zach Levin and and um Kevin, or Keith Sullivan and uh Nicole Atlas, Teddy's daughter, right? So uh talk about some of the, the fighters you're representing. You got it. Sure. Well,
0: you know, we're actually just getting started. As a business, it's a it's a good group of people, um, all of whom I have a friendship with, so all of whom I believe in in terms of their integrity, in terms of their knowledge of the sport, their background in the sport. Uh, uh, so it really is a good group. And as you mentioned, uh, Zach Levin, uh, Keith Sullivan, who's uh, worked with me at the commission, he was actually there for longer than I was. He was a deputy commissioner for about five years and, you know, represents fighters uh, and like me, he, and like Nicole as well, we all uh, do pro bono work as counsel for uh, Teddy's Foundation, the Dr. Theater Atlas Foundation. Um, so all good people and all involved in the sport, but we are starting out as a company. Uh, we're called the Four Corners Advisory Group, but there are four of us, of course. Um, right now, we manage Peter Dobson. He's an 11 and no Welped away to just had a big win in um, Las Vegas. He beat a, a sixteen-year-old, sixteen and zero uh, Emmanuel Medina. Stopped him in the fifth round. So a good victory for him. A good uh, step-up fight for him. So we're hoping for good things for him. And we are, you know, in discussions with uh, with others about about possible fighters. But right now, it's just Peter Dobson uh, as far as the four corners advisory group goes.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I know Pete. Pete's Pete's a, a character, but never in a boring fight, man. Great, great. Just a lot of heart, a lot of power. Just an exciting fighter. He's uh, definitely one to watch. I love watching him fight.
0: Um, so most yeah, of... absolutely, he's. uh now, I, I had a chance to watch uh, Peter a lot when when I was at the commission, actually. So I had front row to his fights, and as you say, he's. He's an exciting fighter, and uh, you're always going to see some action in the ring.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, the commission, you know, most folks know you for for your time at the uh, New York State Athletic Commission. You were the uh, executive director there um, from March of uh, 2014 to, to May of 2016 um you instituted uh you know uh, a number of reforms uh you know w- of which you should be uh, very proud i mean i i, I and i want to go over them because uh, i don't think they get enough attention um people you know generally only hear about commissions when there are scandals uh <laughs> and, and wrongdoing but i think uh, you know it's worthwhile to highlight what you accomplished and 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 why it matters um Let's talk about uh the things you did on on the medical side of things, um and, and with the the ringside physicians. Um now you you kinda came in, you know, right after or, or like a day after or it's very close to, to when uh the Magomed uh Salamov fight with Mike Perez happened and, and he got injured, so you uh, you said about updating the medical protocols. You want to you want to talk about uh, some of the things that you uh, updated with the ringside physicians?
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, I started uh, May first of two thousand fourteen, and the Mega Method fight fight had happened in November of two thousand thirteen. So just a few months before, and obviously um, it, uh, it created a lot of attention on what was going on at the commission, what was going on, uh, with the ringside physicians, of course. Um, and, and on a larger level, there was, uh, an investigation being conducted by the inspector general to see what was done or what wasn't done, um, during that fight. So it's at that time that, um, I was hired as executive director of the New York commission and, What I came to uh, was a place that I felt needed more consistency, more professionalism, uh, specific protocols in the way that we handle situations, Um, not just with the ringside positions, but, you know, in a larger way, the way that we uh, dealt with fighters at weigh-ins, at fights, uh, inspector protocols. Um, And so I tried to bring, you know, most importantly, a respect for, the boxers and their teams and the boxing community in general, and also a consistency in the way that we operated. I always felt it was important um, that all of the inspectors, all of the ringside physicians know this is the way we're going to operate, to find a proper way of operating and to institute it so that fighters, fighters in New York, fighters coming from out of town, uh, because of our consistency would know what to expect when they came to New York. Um, And so toward that end, I worked on establishing specific protocols, uh, both for the ringside physicians, something that I worked with uh, Barry Jordan on, and also for the inspectors in terms of the way that, uh, the way that they did their jobs in the dressing rooms.
1: Right, that was was an issue I know in, in, in the Mago case, which I think just settled out. Um, right. I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, right. you know how, how the, the after fight care was handled. And I know that the, the plaintiff's attorney, I think it was Edelstein. I, I, is it Paul Edelstein? I, I I forget his name, but he's trying to, yeah, to, to get, get I think he's, he's trying to get, uh, some sort of, you know, further reform where I don't know if there's like a waiting period or, or some sort of, Although I think a waiting period would be <laughs> a little dangerous, but I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess either way it's, 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 it's dangerous. You know, if you have the fighters, I mean, I would think, you know, if, if you're suspecting injury, you just send them to to the hospital as opposed to having them wait around. But um, I mean, I, I don't know. I I have to get a little more well-versed, but he, he's looking to, uh, to, uh, to, to have some sort of reform where there's, there's, there, you know, it, it kind of uh, the, the fighters get a little, more carefully uh, observed after the fights.
0: Right. That's actually something. And and right now, the chief medical officer is someone named Nitin Sethi. Um, And Dr. Sethi was a ringside physician uh, during my time at the commission. Uh, Very good man. Very good neurologist. uh, And a guy who genuinely cares about boxing and the fighters. So I think it's great. And he is someone who's proactive in terms, of, uh, in terms of creating reforms. And New York really, under his leadership, is becoming a leader in this, in this area. Um, obviously, that's one of, the, one of the issues that he's confronted. Um, and, and I believe he's instituted a policy whereby fighters are observed now. Uh, they aren't simply checked and cleared. If there's an issue, and of course this is always difficult and always will come down to a doctor's medical judgment, uh, but if there's obviously if there's a serious issue, they send them to the hospital for a CAT scan for any treatment that's necessary. Um, but if there's any kind of uh, suspicion, they, they do have a waiting period where doctors check on the fighter, um, make sure that he's okay before signing off and releasing him. So I think uh dr sephi is is right in his approach he's very practical he's very knowledgeable as i said he's a neuro- neurologist who's been involved in the sport for some time and it's great to have somebody in that position who who cares who's proactive and who has a tremendous amount of knowledge to bring to to bring to what he's instituting so it's uh it's very good that he's in place there
1: absolutely absolutely um another area that um And I'm interested because I'm not as well versed um, on the details of this, although I kind of looked into Nevada. But as far as, you know, protocols regarding, um, you know, PEDs, um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, your your predecessor had a kind of infamous case with Eric Morales where there was, you know, he had tested positive, but he had tested positive, um, you know, it, it was a third party testing group, USADA who had conducted the testing, it wasn't testing by the commission. So it was kind of a novel issue at the time. And, and, uh, you know, the commission was you know, there was kind of a a question about whether they had authority and whether that, that, that testing, you know, should be given any weight by the commission. Um, and all of this, I think it ended up springing up like, you know, the, the week of the fight because USADA hadn't reported anything to the commission either, you know, until like the week of the fight that there had been a positive test for, for PEDs. So um, what did you institute and, and, and um, what is the policy in New York right now as you know, for in, in regards to like third party testing like Avada or a USADA uh, doing testing on fighters for fights in New York?
0: Uh, right now, uh, USADA seems to be out of the boxing business. I mean, there are a couple of uh, exposés essentially written by Thomas Hauser um, who really cast doubt on the kind of testing and the kind of disclosures, really, that USADA was making um, with respect to their work in boxing. So uh, as far as I know, nobody is using USADA at the moment for testing and boxing the the uh, the go-to choice and the good choice is Margaret Goodman's organization, VADA. So um, certainly they've been involved in testing in New York and Nevada as well. In fact, they, they did testing for the Tyson Fury-Hoddle Berlin fight uh, recently out there. Um, and they're certainly a respected organization. And uh, as you know, there have been um, many more positive findings from VADA than there uh, ever were, what you saw it, were it was a, a rare situation, um, but the, the commissions uh, seem to be accepting the results that Vodic uh, gives gives them. I mean, this is information. Uh, we're right up front. Uh, try to sign an agreement with the understanding that this information is going to be shared, um, not just with uh, their own teams, but with the other team, with the commission. And commissions have acted. Uh, based on the VADA results. Um, obviously, we had a situation with Jarrell Miller recently where the New York Commission denied his license uh, based on those positive findings from VADA and, I guess, secondarily also based on the fact that Jarrell uh, Miller had put something down in his application, which was contrary, obviously, to the findings that VADA made. Right. So the commissions are... are uh, respecting and accepting the results from VADA as as is appropriate.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, I thought Nevada did something. I think they kind of took it a step further, where they kind of codified it, where they they you know there's a there's a section of their uh, doping anti-doping uh, um, uh, part of their regulations where um, the third party companies, if a promoter wants to use that kind of testing, they have to register with Nevada and you know they have to you know submit some sort of you know authentication that that, that they are using WADA approved um, testing lab and protocols and so on and it seems like in essence they're like deputizing the uh, the third part which you're saying is, is pretty much WADA although I think USADA is still you know obviously they run the testing for the UFC right so um, so they're still involved in, in, in combat sports but um but uh, they, you know, right. they, they, they kind of like deputized um, VADA and, 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 and USADA to, to almost like do testing on behalf of the state or at least, you know, they're, you know it, there's not the issue of whether the, the commission um, can recognize the test or not. I mean, um, do you see New York or other states kind of adopting something similar to, to Nevada? I mean, do you think that's a good idea or how do you feel on that?
0: Yeah, listen, I don't know the answer as to what New York will do. I, I I was unaware of that, frankly, that they had codified, but I think it makes perfect sense. I mean, clearly, uh, even commissions with the will to do something right in terms of uh, PEDs and PED testing don't have the budget to do it. Um, so the testing that's done now, urine tests before and after the fight for tidal fights in New York, uh, really doesn't reveal a whole lot. Uh, particularly if you're testing somebody who's uh, being guided properly, who knows how to use these right. uh, uh, performance-enhancing drugs in a way where they won't be found. Um, so the tests in place in the commission are virtually worthless, and the, the only kind of testing that uh, works would be the unannounced testing that RADA conducts and that USADA also conducts. Um, So it it certainly makes sense what uh, Nevada has done if they've they've, they've codified this. Um, Again, there's no budget for it on the commission level, and bigger promotions are able to afford this kind of testing um, and order it, at least for their most important sites. Um, So I think that's a a good thing. And then Bob Bennett has done, you know, he's, he's another guy who's proactive, who's trying to do right for the fighters and for the sport. Um, he cares about what he's doing, um, and he is trying to codify certain things, like uh, like this, as you mentioned, also uh, the instant replay rule that they put in place a few months ago, I understand. Um, so he's put it down. He's put pen to paper, um, and, you know, this is exactly the way a commission should operate, where – where whatever you're gonna do is written down so that the public knows so that it's clear, uh, so that there aren't issues later about uh whether you whether you're making up rules as they go along, or whether you really have something in place that's consistent, that the pub boxing public look and see and that the boxers know about. So I, I give credit to Bob Bennett uh for leading that commission and, and putting these putting pen to paper on these things.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in in anything you you need notice, you know, you need you need notice of what the rules are and and transparency and and consistency. Um so uh yeah, I, I really like what what the Nevada Commission did. I wish more more um more commissions would uh, would adopt that that approach. Um another thing I wanted to get to um which comes up a, a lot with boxing fans you know, when when they complain about the sport, and it's obviously a very legitimate um, complaint, is that fighters don't have health care. Um, and I know, as, as commissioner, you uh, you worked in partnership with a with a not for profit that was connected with the uh, Department of Health to enroll uh, New Yorkers in uh, the New York State's uh, health marketplace. So. You, uh, you educated the fighters on how to apply for, for some of these programs. Do you want to talk about
0: that? Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, an initiative I started uh, shortly after joining the commission, something I thought was very important. I was obviously aware of the problem that you have fighters uh, in a dangerous profession, and not only dangerous when they're fighting before a crowd, but dangerous also when they're in their boxing gym, sparring, getting ready for a fight um this each of the states has has every state has a, um that a promoter purchase medical insurance that will cover any injuries to a fighter on the night of a fight um though there are in different states different limits as to uh, as to what kind of coverage a promoter needs to purchase um you know which ranges from ten thousand to a hundred thousand dollars in terms of medical insurance. Um but what wasn't in place was a comprehensive policy for fighters to be protected. Uh so so what I did we teamed up uh, with an organization called NADAC, right. which is a not for profit. Um it does work through the Department of Health uh in New York. And we started educating fighters and their teams, other people in the gym, trainers as well. Um and in how, in, in how to get health insurance, comprehensive health insurance, and signing them up. So we held a number of open houses both at the commission and in the boxing gyms throughout New York City and upstate as well um, in order to enroll uh, fighters and their teams and their families. Uh, so uh, during that push, uh, more than 100 fighters, uh, trainers, their families as well were – signed up people who had no health insurance before uh, and now they had health insurance so if they got that injury in the gym uh they'd have somewhere to go for treatment without having to pay out of pocket or without having to forego treatment which would be the choice of many uh we don't have the funds to pay for medical care yeah it's great initiative and uh again more than 100 fighters uh have health insurance because of because of those open houses
1: no, that's tremendous i think i think you know that 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 would definitely be a, a very positive thing that commissions all around the country could could institute uh when i saw it i was like wow that, that that that's amazing that you that you got that initiative going you did uh you did mention the the insurance limits um that uh you know for 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 injured fighters and and that was a was a a, a really big issue and is you know potentially still an issue here in new york uh, because the bill uh, went a little further i think than a lot of people uh would have, certainly promoters would have wanted in raising uh, the limit uh to uh one million dollars in coverage you know for for severely injured boxers and and you know, uh, you know the, the rumor was the cost of premiums is are uh, you know like over fifty thousand dollars for for just that one event and big issue it you know obviously it affected um you know the the, the smaller Promoters who are doing the smaller shows, who you know, as it is, they're probably you know winning or losing ten thousand dollars, you know, uh, doing these fights. Mo- most often, probably losing money on those club shows, you know, having to foot that bill. Um, now, I, were you involved in, 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 in negotiations or, or, or crafting that language, and um, how did that play out while you were commissioner?
0: Um. Uh, I'll tell you my involvement. And uh, uh, to my mind, the million-dollar insurance requirement uh, does not make sense. It hurts the sport of boxing um, and shouldn't be in place. And I wish there was a political will uh, to get rid of that requirement. Um, when when I was at the commission, when I started, the requirements for New York, and this was codified uh, obviously, was that promoters needed to purchase medical insurance for fighters during a fight of $10,000, and there were death benefits of $100,000 at that time. So it was 10000 for medical, 100000 in case of death. Uh, what I advocated throughout and what eventually uh, came into law, uh, shortly after my departure, actually, uh, but as a result of my efforts, uh, was that New York... Uh, increased its medical insurance to $50,000. And it's basically a 50-50 policy now, $50,000 in medical insurance, $50,000 in death benefits. Um, I felt it was important, uh, first of all, to put us in line with the other important commissions in the United States, Nevada, California, they both have that 50-50 requirement. And also because the $10,000 in medical coverage uh, that was in place in New York was really uh, something that was not keeping up with the times. Obviously, uh, with health care bills today, hospital bills today, $10,000 may not be enough if a fighter gets a broken jaw in the ring. Um, so I felt it was important to increase those limits. Um, and again, uh, it was due to my advocacy that this was put into uh, the new law, um, which came into effect shortly after <laughs> My depart commission. Uh, so now there is a 50 50 limit in place in New York, which is, uh, to my mind, a very positive thing in the way it should be. And of course, New York is an important commission and an important state for boxing, should be in line with the other uh, important boxing states. What I did not uh, ask for <laughs> and it really resisted was this requirement that was put in place, which was the requirement that promoters purchase $1 million in coverage. And, and the language is very specific. In, in the event of life-threatening brain injuries. Uh, so that's essentially how the language in the statute reads. I learned about this about a year before it actually uh, went into place. Uh, I guess September 1st, 2016 is when the new Laws in New York went into place which legalized mixed martial arts in New York. Um, the fact that that law was being created really provided an opportunity um, because since the law was being uh, a new law was being created, I was able to advocate for certain changes within that law so that in addition to MMA being legalized, other uh, advances improvements for boxing could also be placed within the, in the new language of the law. Um, and that is where I asked for the $50,000 in medical insurance uh, to be put in place. A couple of other um, issues as well, which which I was able to advocate and get into this new law, um, which I think are helpful to the sport. Um, but what came back was this language, something I hadn't heard about or talked about, uh, this million-dollar insurance response for life-threatening brain injuries. The, the moment I learned about it, and I, I realized this was wrong. I put in a call to Lawrence Cole, one of the uh, regular companies that insures doctors and, and provides the kind of medical insurance that promoters need to take out for fight. And I, I asked them, you know, what is this gonna mean? And, you know, I had a sense even before making that call because I had done my research uh, when I was checking on the cost of the $50,000 medical insurance and what that would mean for promoters as opposed to the then current policy of $10,000 medical insurance for promoters. So I had some understanding of how much costs would increase. Um, Lawrence Cole's reaction was what mine was, was that this is going to potentially put boxing out of business in New York um, certainly among the small promoters. And he did his research and tried to come back to me with some numbers, even though this was something novel in the sport. But, But the numbers were significantly higher than anything promoters were paying at the time. And I realized immediately this cannot work. It's going to put small promoters out of business. All of those local shows where fighters can... Uh, Show their skills and and be built up in Syracuse and Rochester and Buffalo, Um, and in New York too. Uh, It's going to put them out of business and it's even going to create problems for the larger promoters. Um, And and sure enough, just to digress for a moment, when this law came into effect September 1st, 2016, uh, for several months after that, there was not a single boxing show in New York. So I believe. Certainly, through the rest of 2016, uh, I believe there were no there was no Boston in New York um, from the moment this law was instituted. So it, it clearly had an effect, and the small shows uh, still aren't going on. The local promoters that I worked with in Syracuse and Rochester, uh, they're not doing shows anymore, and it's on account of the cost of this million dollars in insurance. My my sense of it is that it was. political decision, uh, probably political decisions in reaction to the Magomed case, um, but one which was not thought through, and one where the politicians didn't do their homework. Um, So it certainly sounds good. If you don't know the issue, it sounds good. Oh, great. A million dollars in insurance for life-threatening brain injuries. That's really going to help these guys out. But what sounds good on the surface, on the surface is really something that has done a disservice to the sport of boxing in New York and to the fighters who want to ply their trade in their home state, in their home communities. Um, so what it did is it put in place the requirement which, you know, if, if we're honest about this, a million dollars in insurance would not help Nagamed. Uh This man for his care needs multiples of that, and and he received that in the settlement, um, which is a good thing for him and for his family. Uh, But a million dollars in insurance does not do much for a fighter who's in that condition. Um, But what it did on the other end is it put small promoters out of business, and it made it more difficult for larger promoters to promote in New York. Um, it's, It's a piece of insurance that promoters have now been paying for for nearly three years it has not been used yet there hasn't been a need for it which is of course a good thing um but you're talking about an extra expense which which puts a uh, dampener on on the boxing business in new york and gets rid of club shows where smaller fighters uh and their in their communities are now unable to fight new york so it's 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 done little good with a political decision again No one did their homework. No one got on the phone like I did the day I learned about it to speak to Lawrence Cole. uh, They could have gotten on the phone for half an hour and gotten to the bottom of this and understood what effect this would have on the boxing business. Uh, But no one bothered. They put in place something that sounded good um, and refused to revisit it. I was, as I said, I learned about this about a year before it actually came into place because The law which legalized MMA uh, was being considered a year earlier than it was actually passed. And uh, there was thought that it would pass, but it it, it was a few votes short that year. So they had a year to deal with this. And it was a year in which I was pushing um, and saying this has to go. Uh, But again, uh, the politicians had their way and that law is in place. And it it continues to damage the sport because we don't have... uh, Other than the occasional show by Lou DiBella and Joe DiGuardia, um, and credit to them for being being able to make ends meet, um, it has done away with uh, small-time boxing with uh, local club shows in New York State.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. I I I remember uh some people were kind of accusing the UFC. I mean the UFC obviously lobbied very hard uh to, to get the the legislators to, to allow MMA in New York, but some were saying that, you know, they put it in their head, uh the 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 million dollars in coverage. But I can't imagine that they would that they would do something where, you know, they're gonna end up having to pay extra, you know, more than they're paying in any other uh any other state as well. It does sound like something right. politicians kind of botched. <laughs> so.
0: I think you're right. I think the UFC uh, was also against it. I, I actually met with Mark Ratner and other executives from the UFC um, during this period. And they, um, at least in what they shared with me, absolutely opposed this this extra requirement. So... I know the rumors were swirling out there about UFC being responsible but from my information it's exactly the opposite they 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 were against the idea and understood that it's uh, not a good thing for combat sports.
1: Right, right. So so there's that but uh but also you know while while you were there you you had uh seminars for referees and judges and inspectors and um you know, and, and I think I've seen you talk about this as well. I mean, your philosophy, you know, in in assigning referees and judges, you know, you, you based it on uh, you know their, their their proven ability and performance, uh, you know, so that the, the fighters got treated fairly, especially in the big fights. You wanted to put like um, you know New York's best judges forward, uh, so that so that there were you know you know fair decisions that came down when when you know there's a big spotlight on. On the fights, um, now I, I wanted to ask you: Is it? Is it? Um, I think you also said that, that you gave the camps an opportunity to to object to certain officials for cause. Um, now, is this codified in, in 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 the rules, or was this something that was more discretionary with with the commissioner?
0: Um, it, it was a rule that was put in place at that time. Um, you know, as, as you said, my my, my belief at the commission was that our first mission is to serve the boxers, um, to make sure that they're treated fairly, um, not just to enforce safety requirements, but to make sure that there's a level playing field, uh, when these fighters fought and to make sure that the right man or woman, uh, has her her hand raised at the end of a fight. Good judging. So uh, I certainly cared about, all of the people who worked with the commission, the officials, the inspectors and, and did what I could to, um, to take care of them. Um, I actually was able to get the first raise for inspectors in 25 years, um, where their, uh, per diem, uh, pay basically doubled. Um, so I was looking out for them, but, but always, um, my understanding was that the, our first mission was to serve the boxers. And, and that meant, Putting the proper officials in place. It also meant, as you mentioned, having regular seminars so that uh, referees could learn from each other, judges could learn from each other, inspectors could learn exactly the the kind of protocols they should be instituting consistency, um, and and the idea always of respecting the fighter, serving the fighter, not using the position and. and in, in any other way in any abusive way obviously that sometimes comes with uniforms and with uh, and with patches um right and and with that kind of uh, authority so the emphasis was always on using our positions in the right way to serve the boxers and their teams to understand what players are going through about to step into the ring and to make their lives uh, as easy as as possible you know while doing our job um, as as members of the of the commission. Um, and yes, part of serving the boxes was absolutely getting the right officials in place. And, uh, I was the person in the position who had the, who had to use my judgment to make those decisions. And, and yes, I would always choose the referees that I thought were right. And the judges that I thought were right. And were going to, uh, give both fighters a fair fight.
1: Right yeah I mean I know like Bob Bob Bennett is taking a lot of stick for this because uh you know um what he you know cuz it, it's I mean judging is so subjective it's 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 you know very intelligent reasonable people can differ as, as to who won a, a competitive fight um and you know as far as coming up with like a grading system or 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 criteria cuz I remember Greg talking to Greg Serb about this and he said he he tried to keep like a list or or had some sort of, you know, tried to get some sort of grading system, you know, where you know you were, you were looking at officials and, and you know people who were consistently getting things wrong, you know, should should be pointed out. But I mean, did you ever look at anything like that? Was it the, the pod index that, that kind of has like it rates judges for consistency and, and all that? I mean, did did you have anything like that as far as uh as far as uh,
0: grading the judges? Listen, as you say, it is it is very difficult. Obviously what judges do is is subjective to a degree, though there there's certainly a right and wrong answer and in most cases, with most rounds, with most of what referees are doing. Uh but judgment does come into it and obviously judgments can differ. Um in terms of judging the judges and the referees, um I would say that's just as difficult. It's something that I always try to keep track of. I would always take notes during fights, after fights. Uh, often my attention would be on referees and what they're doing in the ring, uh, judges' scorecards as they're coming in. Um, and I would, and again, this is part of the learning process and the growing process. I would speak with or meet with referees and judges um, in, in places where I saw a need for that. Um, so I'd get on the phone and I'd speak to a referee about um, his or her performance. Um, you know, many of them had very good relationships. They, they would call me or they would stop by so that we could discuss the last fight they did. mean, um, I think these sessions were helpful, not not as a not as a means to criticize, but as a means to allow officials to grow. Um, you can look at tape. You can learn some things you did. You can grow better. Um, and, and I think that happened with many of the referees um, who were there. So there there was an attention to that. Um, you know, Todd index is something I looked at. I think it's a worthy tool. Obviously, it's, it's not the final answer. And, um, you know, the, the creators of it, uh, Podgorski, that, you know, says that himself, this isn't the final answer, but it's another tool that commissions can use. And so, yes, as a tool, I think it's something that's useful. Um, I don't think there'll ever be perfect system in place for uh, being able to grade referees and judges in a strictly objective way. A lot of it does come down to judgment. Um, but whatever data we can gather, you know, including what the pod index gathers is is useful in making those decisions. Um, in terms of giving the camps a say, um, that is something that I couldn't place while I was there. It was, uh, it was put out there as as a commission rule. It's not, in, it's not in the statute, certainly, or the rules, but it was simply a commission policy um, and one that we abided by. I think they may have changed that. Uh, some of the language in that policy after the time that I left, but essentially it's it gave the camps notice, uh, I think it was about three weeks' notice, of uh, a, a list of possible referees, possible judges, so without giving them the names of who was going to be officiating, it was a number of names, um, and with the understanding that it's from that list that we would select the officials. So we would ask the camps, do you have any objections? If you do, let us know who, let us know why, and give us your reasons. If you have any documentation, if you just want to, uh, explain your reasons, uh, go ahead. And, you know, I allowed them to do it either in writing or simply in a phone call because obviously, uh, camps might be wary about criticizing particular officials in writing and I understood that. Um, so, um, camps would on occasion have an objection, uh, I would of course make a determination whether it was legitimate or not legitimate and make the appropriate selection of officials. But the entire list were officials who I felt were qualified and competent to judge that particular fight. Um, and sometimes officials were struck off that list based on the objections of a particular camp. Right. It came to me a fair way uh, to, to approach this. We're going to, we're going to, put qualified officials in place, but if there's a reason to object, and listen, as I said before, it's a small community. Sometimes people know each other. Sometimes it's improper to have a particular judge judging a particular fighter if, if he knows the camp, if he knows the trainer. Um, so, so that was the reason for that policy, give, give the boxers in their camps a say.
1: Right. No, I think I think that's great. I mean, I, I definitely appreciate it when uh, when I've had world title fights in in foreign countries. Actually, and the sanctioning body it was tasked with uh, with uh, with coming up with the officials and 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 gave us notice and 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 the ability to object. I mean, I think that I think that's great because you know, oftentimes there are officials who you're you're not, you're either, they, they, I don't know about, you know, improper relationships, but just, you know, if you're looking at their track record and there's like, you know, vast inconsistencies, you know, you, you, you know, as, as a manager, you're, you're definitely very wary of that. So, so no, I think that's a great policy. Sure. It's a great policy. Uh, where was, where was the, um, the uh, commission's position on instant replay when you were there and and where is it now? I I know that they're implementing some sort of instant replay in New York. Um, So so talk about where it was when you came in and and where it was and what you did and where it is now.
0: You know, it's it's a big issue in the sport and it's uh, a a difficult issue. As you know, I wrote an article about it for Boxing News some time ago. Um, and maybe it was an article that raised more, more questions than, then had answers. Um, you, know, you cut it's out, it's changed recently. Um, their policy, their policy had been that the only time that instant replay could be used would be, well, I should say video replay. Cause it wouldn't have been instant in that case. Um, was if there was a fight ending incident, um, and at that point, take could be looked at. If a referee made a mistake that he uh, said the legal punch ended the fight and it was really a headbutt that caused the injury, um, the results could be changed based on that video replay. Uh, Nevada now put in place uh, a, a new policy where they have instant replay that can take place during the fight. Um, they have essentially a second referee at ringside who's charged with uh, reviewing this videotape, helping the referee in the ring. make um, calls when the referee in the ring, who remains the ultimate arbiter of, uh, of you know, what's happened inside the ring, um, consults with them. Um, so they have a system now where that. Referee ringside can look at videotapes, so can the referee in the ring, so can, uh, you know, Bob Bennett along with them, of course, um, and review something that happened inside the ring. There are really, you know, there are difficulties both ways. I mean, the, the, I spoke to uh, Ken Kaiser years ago when he was running the Nevada Commission, um, and he felt that the appropriate way was only to review video. At the end of a fight, for the reason that you don't want to interrupt the flow of a fight, you know I understand other sports have video replay um, you know these are sports where there are timeouts, uh, baseball, football it's, it's not going to hurt the flow of play if you take a few seconds or a minute to review videotape. obviously uh, that is different in boxing um, where the fight is moving forward where in order to review video, you would have to stop the action. So that's one difficult aspect of it. Uh, the other difficult aspect is that a fighter might be fighting one way based on his belief that this was a punch or a headbutt that caused a particular injury. Um, and you don't change that immediately. Um, then a fighter has possibly changed his game plan and may have to change it back. If the ruling is now changed. Uh, so there are difficulties and it's, you know, it's, I like the idea of instant replay in the sense that you want to get the calls right. And obviously that's, what's most important, uh, getting it right. And you don't want to fight and the outcome of a, fight, of a fight to be dependent on a mistaken calls by a referee. Um, but it is problematic in that it can change the flow of a fight and can interrupt the flow of a fight. Uh, so again, I'm not I'm not sure I have an answer. Um, I see the difficulty in 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 making that decision.
1: Absolutely, actually, what what is the New, the New York State Athletic Commission's policy right now? Do do they allow um, review between rounds or or is it still? I mean, I remember in, in your piece you were critical of Ron Scott because they were a little inconsistent in applying it um, you know, where they, they changed the outcome, uh, right. you know, in, in, you know, in, uh, in the face of legal precedent, they changed the outcome of a few fights and then they didn't change the outcome of, of other fights. So, um, but, uh, right. yeah, so, so and, 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 go ahead.
0: Yeah. That, and that, that was my criticism. I mean for you know, we spoke earlier about, uh, the importance of codifying things, of putting things in writing, so that fighters have notice of what to expect, so that there are consistent rules in place, and obviously that's uh, important in the administration of a sport and in the administration of boxing, where you don't have that, and we see it too often in boxing. Um, commissions, sanctioning bodies, they essentially do what they want; they make it up as they go along, and that's not the way. Uh, professional sports should be run, making it up as you go along. So in that case, my criticism, you know, wasn't necessarily in the rule that they instituted or a rule that they made up and applied in that case. Um, If you want to have that rule in place, fine. There are legitimate reasons to say the fight ended. We want to review videotapes to see if uh, the referee's call was correct or not correct on that fight ending incident. That's fine. You have a rule in place, take a look, apply the rule. But where there's no rule in place, where the rule in place says the referee makes those decisions and that's the end of a matter, you don't change it for a particular fight or for a particular fighter or for a particular promoter. Uh, you don't change it midstream. You don't change, you don't make up a new rule uh, for a situation. Maybe you learn from the situation. And you put in place a rule so the next time uh, everybody knows this is how we're going to do things. But again, my criticism was the fact that uh, this was essentially, it went against precedent and it was something that was made up for the occasion. And, you know, if if you have that, you're not going to have a consistent application. You need things to be codified. You need fighters, as you said, to have notice of what the rules are.
1: Right, absolutely, absolutely. Um another thing you've advocated for is uh on, on more than one occasion is same day weigh ins. Um was that something that, that you tried to pursue in New York or or um and, and do you still feel that way? Do you still feel that uh same day weigh ins are 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 better for the sport? Uh, I loved I love the quote from Serb you had in your article. You know, what's more important, what the kid weighs you know, uh, you know, at the weigh-in before the fight, or uh, what he weighs at competition. I mean, that, that's that's definitely a great point.
0: So, so where are you on that? Right. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, is a great point, and, and a great quote from Greg Serb, who's uh, who's someone who's also very interested in this issue, and and one of the rare commissioners or executive directors who, uh, at least for a long period of time, was holding same-day weigh-ins. So if you went down to the Blue Horizon a few years ago, uh, fighters would be checking in and weighing in in the morning and fighting that evening. Um, Obviously, most of the sport, and maybe even Pennsylvania now, I'm not certain, uh, has day-before weigh-ins. Again, it's a difficult issue. um, And the argument for having day-before weigh-ins is that it's allows the fighter time to rehydrate. Obviously, dehydration is uh, a big issue in the sport and a big danger to fighters. Um, My concern, and I think Greg Serb shares this concern, is that by having it the day before, it's almost inviting abuse by fighters who know that they have uh, 24 hours or sometimes 36 hours uh, to put that weight back on. Um, And it gives certain fighters... Unfair advantages, or seemingly unfair advantages. Obviously, there's a debate about whether uh, gaining so much weight is certainly it's not healthy. But there's a, a, a disagreement as to whether it even gives that fighter an advantage, um, or for really a disadvantage, which I think might be the case. Um, so yeah, I, I would say Greg's sort of statement sums it up, and that we want fighters who are for a, for a level playing field for a fair fight, you want them to weigh essentially the same thing in the ring. Obviously, that's going to be served better by having the weigh-in closer to the fight, not farther away from the fight. And it also, you know, I, I imagine that uh, fighters in another era, when they were weighing in the day of the fight, um, were probably smaller men in their weight divisions than they are now. So I think it might naturally go that way. If this were the rule, then perhaps fighters who are fighting as middleweights now would be fighting as as super middleweights and weighing in the day of the fight. Um, So there'd be a shift over time. Um, But I I certainly think that's uh, the rule that creates a more level playing field. Um, During my time at the commission, we actually, I would have regular discussions with commissioners from, uh, the leaders of other commissions in other states, um, really as a way of, of trying to get on the same page on certain issues, talk about certain issues, speak about whether our commissions can form some kind of, uh, uniform rule so that boxes have consistency, not just, uh, not going to one state and having one rule, another state and another rule. Um, so we did have those discussions and I would speak regularly. Um, with Andy Foster in California, with Bob Bennett in Nevada, with Greg Serb in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and we did speak about this issue and how we could get it done and how we could get done in a safe way. Um, unfortunately, we didn't come to a conclusion. But my, my thought at the time was perhaps we – way to scientifically determine what a fighter's – lowest safe weight is as they do in wrestling, there's uh, body fat testing Uh, they determine a a proper, appropriate safe weight for that fighter to to fight at if we were able to institute something like that in boxing, and again, I don't know that on a practical level it's possible or certainly it's not easy, but if we're able to make that scientific medical determination, that's the lowest safe weight for a fighter that. Um, then we could you know, put on a federal ID card this is the lowest allowable weight for this fighter. Um, and perhaps that would be a way of uh, getting fighters to fight in the proper weight class, um, preventing uh, dehydration you know, uh, where fighters uh, lose so much weight that they're probably below that safe fighting weight at the time they weigh in. Um, and, and in this way, moving back the same day weigh-ins uh, knowing the lowest safe weight for a fighter, having them weigh in the day of the fight, a level playing field, still protecting their safety. So that seemed to me an idea that was worth exploring, and, and I would say it's still worth exploring.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think Foster out in, in, in California is trying to institute, institute some sort of study. to, to, to uh, I know he was uh, instituting a study on weight cutting, so i would assume that that would that would be a part of it to actually uh you know have some sort of determination of what you know what uh fighters should be or you know what what, what proper weight that they should be fighting at i think that's that's a it's a really great idea um it's interesting too you were talking about because i mean i would assume you're meeting with these guys you know in in at the uh, association of uh, boxing commissions the abc uh those kind of annual meetings and 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 so on um, another thing you had advocated for, and many have as well, uh, including uh, the late Senator uh, John McCain, was a national commission. Um, you know, as someone who was, you know, boots on the ground, boots on the ground. You know, you you were part of the ABC. Um, you know, what, what would be the how would you see a, a national commission playing out uh, in the states, and, and what are some of like the, the the biggest hurdles that would would have to be overcome? Um, you know it, it, if a national commission were instituted,
0: sure, I mean uh the biggest hurdle probably is a political hurdle. I don't know that there's the interest or the will uh in Congress or with the president uh, to create such a commission. um I'm certainly in favor of one I'm in favor really of any kind of structure that would bring uniformity to the sport. Uh, We have a sport now, and this is one of the common criticisms in boxing, where each state has its own rules, each state has its own medical requirements. Fighters who are not permitted to fight in one state will be allowed to fight in the next state. Um, So these things need to change. I don't know if they will change, but they they should change and they do need to change. And uh, for me, the easiest way... Uh, although again, I don't think there's a political will, but, but perhaps the only possible way to get something like that done is with a national commission. Um, a national commission would set the rules, would set the medical standards, would make sure there's a national database of all this information. Um, and perhaps would take on that, that tricky task of, of rating fighters and, and bring consistency to that area as well. Um. You know, of course, it has its flaws. It would be national. It wouldn't be worldwide. Um, But, you know, I believe that other uh, boxing commissions worldwide might fall into line with what the United States does, just because of the importance of uh, boxing in the United States on the world stage. Uh, So I would like to see that happen. I'd love to see a, a national commission... Um, you know, other ideas, and we've talked about this, first for creating this kind of uniformity, well, good ideas, they generally would require promoters cooperating. I don't know that that's in the cards, certainly not right now. Um, you know, the beauty, if you can call it that, of national commission is that this would be something that was imposed from the outside, uh, that people would have to go along with, um... It wouldn't be a matter of promoters saying, hey, let's uh, sit down and cooperate and create a structure for ourselves, because history has told us that's not happening. Um, you know, as, as skeptical as I am of, of government at times, government stepping in and creating this kind of structure is something that I think would be very helpful to, to boxing
1: no I, I i completely agree with uh with a need for a a national commission absolutely I, I think uh you know as you speak of you know the uniformity of rules i mean that, that's it, it's definitely a real thing i mean just as as uh you know a manager of fighters and and you know you know not even talking about the the medical part which obviously can be very dangerous if if, if you don't have you know very baseline medical tests going on and certainly you know performance enhancing drug testing um, but even even you know where you feel like your fighter has been done wrong, you know just the ability to complain to a commission or appeal to a commission—it's not the same in every state. <laughs> you know, it, there, you know there's there's hardly any uniformity right. to that, and and you know in some places you go, you just kind of know you know you, you there's a very good chance that uh, that you know you're, you're not going to get a fair shake, and and that's that's really not a good feeling when you're bringing your fighter into that. Um so uh yeah, Absolutely. I, mean, I think a national commission would would go a long way and and you know, bringing some uh you know uh, uniformity and 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 that is without question something that's not happening in the sport right now. um yeah, as far, you know, i mean i I wrote that article about a year ago about a boxing league, and you know, to me, you know I, I just didn't see you know the government being able to to do anything and and to me, just looking at the numbers, I'm like there's only like two or th- you know three or four major players, you know, I mean, how, how do they not look at the other sports and see, like, how giant, you know, the NFL and, and, and you know, the Major League Baseball, I mean, th- those sports started out as, like, barnstorming, you know, independent sports as well. And then they just, you know, the light bulb went on and say, wow, you know, what if we all cooperated and, you know, put this under a structure and marketed it, you know, maybe we could make more money. And and, and they have, you know, and that's, and that's the big complaint of fans is that there's just not one, you know, one body... One league, one one thing that you can look to, um, where you know you're going to get consistent fights, where fights lead to fights, and and there's one champion, you know, per division. I mean, it, you know, if if the government of the United States could get that accomplished, you know, I'd, I'd be all for it, you know, A- absolutely. But uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just thinking, right. you know, if if you know, the, the, it seems like, you know, the, the, the major players are kind of consolidating and, and, and uh, the smaller players are are struggling out there. I'm just like, you know, if, uh, if boxing is going to continue, I think the major players need to be, you know, a lot more responsible and maybe start thinking about the greater good of the sport instead of just the, you know, the the next fight and, and, and the next TV deal. But But these are questions for another day. <laughs> So <laughs> that's it. That's another few hours. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I don't want to keep you all day. Well, David, I, I really, really, really appreciate your time. This was incredibly informative and and enjoyable, and and I'm sure people will will, will love this. So, uh, really appreciate your time, my man.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Chris, and thanks for having me on.
1: All right, right. Really appreciate it, man. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring and ringtv.com and distributed by the Leave It In The Ring network. Really like to thank David Berlin for taking the time out to speak with me. I thought that was a tremendous conversation. I I learned a lot. Uh, Just a great guy. Uh, Love to have him back again soon. Um, If you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audio Boom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. I really appreciate it as it helps new listeners find the podcast. And also, do not forget to check out my companion piece to this podcast on ringtv.com that features quotes and background on my interview with David. And until next time, folks, so long, everybody.